back. Hello again from Austin. <laughs> Welcome to episode <laughs> 70 of the National Security Law Podcast, still brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm it would, it would be still impressive, Bobby. It, it, it would be impressive if it wasn't still brought to you by the Strauss Center since we just recorded <laughs> episode 69 it's, 22 hours ago. It's not been a full day and we're back and we have a lot to talk about. What is going on, Steve? What is happening? Well, the Mets bullpen collapsed in the eighth inning last night. In a very typical Mets fashion, and so we won't be talking anymore about the Mets for a little while. All right, so we'll leave we'll leave that to the side. Um, so, so we actually will not be talking about the dramatic Sean Hannity reveal um, in Judge Woods Court. It's not why we're here. Um, we weren't planning to talk about Doe versus Mattis, but it is actually right back in the news. We also have some Supreme Court developments this morning. But Bobby, the real reason why we decided to sit back down is a pretty important development yesterday. Senators Bob Corker and Tim Kaine dropped their new proposed draft AUMF, a bill that by all accounts has a serious chance at least of getting out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And if there's anything that national security law professors love, it's talking about <laughs> draft AUMFs. I feel like we've been down the road before. So, so uh, my gut instinct would not have been to sit down and do this special episode, except that it's Corker and Kaine, and they seem serious this time. There, there is, there's a general tenor of this is more serious than some of the prior rounds we've got. Um, it's 2018. Anything can happen. I mean, as <laughs> I just want to let, let me go back to the very end of yesterday's episode where I said I didn't think we would make it to the end of the week without another episode, and we didn't <laughs> even make it to the next day. We didn't make it to lunch. Well, it's it, and I'm sure more stuff will happen. But let's get into the details. We're going to start with the smaller stuff. We'll we'll do a, a recap of what the sudden and apparently potentially dramatic developments in Doe v. Mattis, one of our longest-running topics on the show. What's Almost as long-running as the AUMF itself. <laughs> now, that would be something. Indeed. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, a new development in United States versus Microsoft, and then a case we've not previously mentioned, but that's quite interesting. Sessions versus DeMaia, also decided by the Supreme Court this morning. Bob, you wanted to say a word about the, yes, there are more sanctions, no, there aren't more sanctions development. <laughs> exactly. You know, here I am over the recent weeks trying to give the administration uh, credit for being tough on Russia on the sanctions front after a long period of inactivity that was playing into the narrative that Trump is is for a variety of reasons soft on Russia. And, and then you have this. All Come right. on. And then we're going to finish with a very deep dive into the Corker Kane AUMF. And just to spoil the punchline, kids, Bobby, as he wrote in a very good Lawfare post this morning, is generally supportive. And I've got some questions. There's a Shocker. Shocker. Drink. <laughs> oh, we both have questions. And All right. I, have, I think it's I have, quite fair that I you have, have more serious, concern. I have serious reservations. Yes. We have a, we have a long track record of disagreement on this, the issue we'll be talking Which about Which will be shortly. manifested very well in our discussion of the All right. So with all that, welcome to episode 70. Bobby, let's go. Doe v. Mattis. So this morning, a variety of our of our uh, favorite journalists, Zoe Tillman, Katie Bo Williams, Josh, Josh Gerstein. Uh, hey, that was good. Uh, synchronized. Thank you. We should form a boy band. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anyways, a variety of people noted some uh, remarkable filings late last night on the docket for Doe v. Mattis. Let, let, let's remind everyone who Doe is and what this case is about. Don't know who he is, <laughs> well, that's except <laughs> that uh, we do know he's an American citizen, but also a Saudi citizen. This is the American slash Saudi citizen held in military detention by the U.S. in Iraq for, well, since September. Mm -hmm. this is this, And we know a lot of the factual allegations now at this point. He's got a habeas petition that's been pending forever. And there's two tracks of the litigation. Track one is, 
Is he legally and factually detainable? And that's at the district court before Judge Chutkin. And that turns largely on one of the big unanswered questions in contemporary U.S. counterterrorism law and policy, whether ISIS is covered by the 2001 authorization for this military force. Which tees up our later discussion Indeed. of the AMF very nicely. Uh, meanwhile, there's this collateral issue that's arisen uh, because the government's pretty plainly eager to part ways with Mr. Doe by way of transfer either to prosecution in Iraq uh, which you know is the country most likely to be able to put together a prosecution, uh, or to his other country of citizenship, Saudi Arabia, where in fact it seems he's lived most of his life. And where that stood was Judge Chutkin had basically enjoined the government not from transferring Doe, but from um, or had ordered the government to provide Doe with 72 hours notice before any such transfer to provide Doe with an opportunity to object to the legality, the legal basis of the transfer. Um, the government had appealed that ruling to the D.C. Circuit. Bobby, oral argument was heard on April 5th. It looks like that may be what this is about. It's, it's so look, we, we're going to we're going to speculate on uh, what is probably happening here. Let's let's kind of unfold the events of how it went down last night. I think this, these details are so interesting. 8 p.m. Eastern time. There's a uh, filing of a sealed notice and immediately by the government. Yeah, by the government. Sorry. Now, that, of course, is entirely consistent with many things, but it's certainly consistent with notification that now they this is your 72 hours notice before transfer. We've got a deal in place with either the Saudis or the Iraqis. Um, the court immediately ordered DOJ to confirm that it had served this document on Doe's counsel, the ACLU. Um, and now by 1 p.m. today, there's got to be a redacted version, which will no it doubt, some, it'll, it'll say that, you know, right. a deal's in place to transfer. To it'll, redacted country. To redacted. And it'll either be, you know, space to put in Republic of for, Iraq for, or right, like, Kingdom uh, of Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Um, so we'll, no doubt somebody will unpack that shortly. Looking um, at you, Matt Tate. That's right. Matt can do that. Um, so then uh, ACLU has until 5 p.m. to file its response. Um, and then there's oral argument scheduled tomorrow afternoon at 3.30 before Judge Chutkin. So what they'll be doing at that point is ACLU. In, it's possible that this will be a deal that's actually attractive to, to Doe compared to the status quo. So, yep. for example, if they're going to transfer to the Saudis and the terms aren't too onerous, I would assume that they might actually have a deal in place on that. But if not... Uh, it'll get litigated, and the and ACLU, on behalf of Doe, can argue either fear of torture or what we call the Valentine issue. That is, that there needs to be something either in treaty or a statute affirmatively conferring authority on the executive branch to transfer him because he's a citizen. And that makes it special, even in these circumstances. Well, and, and to be clear, I mean, Bobby, the, 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 as I understand the procedural posture, presumably the ACLU would have to object in some way and file something to block the transfer. Because That's the right. government, if, if, if we are correct in speculating that last night's notice was the notice Judge Chuckin required, that started the clock. And so at 8 p.m. on, uh, what is today? Tuesday. Uh, was a, a, a 8 p.m. Thursday. I can't do math. Um, the government would be able to transfer him without violating the court order. That's right. And, let, and of course, so clearly, if he's not happy with the deal they've struck, the ACLU they will, will file move for some kind yeah. of emergency relief, a TRO, exactly. a stay, something. And so, I, I, so when we look at what's going to happen tomorrow at three thirty, since there's no such filing yet, that's either a handy placeholder to immediately weigh in on the issue. Or perhaps it's just look, it's in the nature of we're going to have a status conference, right. and there may or may not need to be a separate schedule of briefing Correct. on the risk of torture or Valentine. If the ACLU is not going to object, right. so so this so let's play this out, right? So let's imagine 
Um, let, let's go both scenarios. Scenario yep. number one, ACLU doesn't object. Scenario number two, they do. Okay. Okay. They don't object. So they don't object. That, I think that means that by Thursday, Doe gets transferred, and that will have the effect of mooting Abs- both. Absolutely. Right. Both his pending habeas petition challenging the legality of his detention and the government's pending appeal challenging Judge, Judge Chutkin's 72-hour requirement. And both of those things may be very attractive to the government yes. because there's no guarantee they'd win on either one. Yes. I actually think they should win on both of them, but reasonable people can disagree. Reasonable people like me. And when you're in doubt and it's significant, and I hear, I think, um, you know, they have a lot of runway in front of them on the underlying habeas merits mm-hmm. issue about the mm-hmm. AMF, which is a huge issue. I, I think it's the uncertainty about that D.C. Circuit ruling. Which, of course, which, would be precedential in a way that a district exactly. court ruling would not be. Yeah. And, and it matters. And it's also something that could drop relatively soon. I mean, it's you know, it's been 10 days. They're not likely to drop their opinion No, no, know, but it was, it was an injunctive appeal, right? The D.C. Circuit tends to try to resolve those with dispatch. Yeah. So there's a little, it, you know, you see the effect of ambiguity on negotiating positions, perhaps. Uh, of course, there's also intrinsic reasons to do it. This may simply be the culmination of what has long been their policy of trying to transfer this guy. So maybe it's determined in both ways. Now, um, if the government, let's say let's say it's contested, Steve. So then Judge Chutkin rules for the detainee on the uh, transferability issue, either fear of right. torture, Valentine, or both. Then the government's going to run right to the D.C. Circuit. And also, if it goes the other way. Right. Uh, surely the detainee and his lawyers go right to the D.C. That's circuit. Right. And either way, I think the transfer – so I think there would be no question that the equities would weigh in favor of staying the transfer until that appeal was resolved, right? That that if you think about whether whoever loses in the district court will be able to – I mean, right. if it's – listen, if the government loses, there's no equity, right? right. But if, if Doe loses, I could see him getting a, a temporary stay. So I think it's fair to say that unless he's going along with this deal, this is the beginning of what's going to be another multi-week litigation process. I think that's right, Um We'll have to see what happens. Yeah. It's funny, though, because, you know, at the oral argument on the notice of transfer provision, as we covered in a prior show, there was a lot of discussion of the actual merits of, you know, what would I call the Valentine rule. And uh, that was, in, it turns out, kind of a dress rehearsal for what's coming up, which is one way or the other, if this is going to be contested, another D.C. Circuit oral argument. So my question for you, Mr. Fed Quartz, uh, does, does it go to that same panel? As a related case, or do, do we have this bizarre situation? Where you have separate panels with right. the same now, of course, And, of course, the first panel could stay its proceedings in line. So, so I think the stay application, right, as soon as it goes to whoever the April motions panel is in the D.C. Circuit, I'm not sure who it is. I haven't looked. Um, actually, I don't think they usually publicize it, so we might not find out until they rule. I think there would be every reason for the motions panel to refer any appeal on the legality of the transfer to the same three-judge panel that's already considering whether Judge Chuckin was entitled to require 70 hours notice. They're already familiar with the case. They've heard one argument. I think all of the sort of, all of the, I hate to use this word again, but equities, right, would weigh in favor of uh, letting that panel, what's called retained jurisdiction, or or hear the related case. Right. Okay. So I think... Is there anything else we can do that's not just rank speculation? At no, this point? I think. I mean, I think it's. I, I'll just. I'll, I'll be a little stronger. I think it's pretty clear that that's what that this is what's happening. Yeah. I mean, what else could it possibly right. be? Uh, especially to get things moving this quickly. Yeah. And so I think you know the the question is just what happens at tomorrow's hearing, um, and if the ACLU does indeed object, 
um, how does that get resolved and how quickly does that get resolved? And if it doesn't leak out which of the two countries we're talking about here, if we see the ACLU really pushing hard to resist, I'm thinking that's transferred to Iraq for prosecution. I think that's right. I think think the, the more the ACLU fights, the more I think it's Iraq, unless there's some specific condition of the transfer to Saudi Arabia that really gets their dandruff. Right, which could be. Um, I bet it'll leak out pretty soon anyways, but we'll see. Um, Speaking of courts, um, the Supreme Court actually finally issued some more opinions today. Hey, (laughs) so it turns out they weren't just like on vacation or something. Although the first thing they announced today was that they would not, in fact, be issuing opinions tomorrow as they had previously said they would. God, there is such a logjam of work coming. All right, so we got three opinions, um, and I think at least two of them of some interest to our listeners. The third is actually a case I'm covering for for SCOTUS blog, so it's of interest to me. Um, So the first opinion was in the re-argued case of Sessions versus DeMaia. Okay. Um, should we do, do Demaya first? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is actually not a core national security law class. This is a great statutory interpretation uh, uh, case. Um, the case involves a provision of Title 18, 18 U.S.C. Section 16, subsection B, um, that refers to basically crimes of violence, unquote. It's a generic mm-hmm. definition. It's used to incorporate state law offenses. So, Bobby, if I, you know, whack you with a baseball bat... Um, right, and I'm prosecuted under Texas state law, you know, courts will look at whether the elements of the Texas state law assault offense, of which I would be convicted, qualify as a crime of violence within the meaning of the federal statute. This is relevant both for um, federal criminal prosecutions based on recidivism, right, sentencing enhancements, and as in DiMaia, deportation, because there are all kinds right. of uh, cases where immigrants are deported, removed from the country, um, if they're found to have not committed any crime, but committed a crime of violence. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So the question is whether the term crime of violence is sufficiently clear or whether it's vague in violation of the Fifth Amendment's due process And I gather there was a 2015 Scalia opinion that looms really large here as a precedent? Yes. So in a a criminal context, right, with dealing with a different statute but with very similar wording, uh, the so-called residual clause of the Armed Career Criminals Act, Justice Scalia wrote this very important and I think largely neglected um, majority opinion in 2015, a case called Johnson versus United States, holding that that provision was unconstitutionally vague, um, applying relatively well-settled vagueness ideas, right? That if it's not clear to the average person on the street Mm -hmm. which offenses are included within this definition, that can't be constitutional. And I think the only thing that's really sort of not not surprising, but worth noting on that, sometimes you encounter people who've not thought a lot about how politics intersects with constitutional interpretation, who just assume that, well, Scalia is conservative, therefore, he surely would go with the government. But of course, uh, many conservatives, uh, the very definition of their conservativeness is concerned about government power. And Scalia on criminal uh, procedure matters, I think about Crawford and the Confrontation Clause, or the, the Johnson case with uh, vagueness doctrine uh, by, by no means was someone you would predict is always going to go with the government. And, and now it turns out that his successor is of a like mind. Um, at least on this issue, which I think is not, at least to like folks who I think have been following this carefully, is not a huge surprise. Um, so this case was argued actually about two years ago, and Justice Scalia died before there was a decision. So this was one of those cases that was set for re-argument right. once Justice Gorsuch was appointed. So clearly Scalia was the swing vote the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I was pretty sure then that Scalia would have sided with the lefties. Uh-huh. Um, the only difference here is that this is an immigration statute, not a criminal statute. Right. 
But the whole point of the today's basically both Justice Kagan's opinion, Justice Gorsuch's opinion concurring in the judgment is that that's a factual distinction for purposes of whether it's unconstitutionally vague. It's right. not a material distinction. Unless, unless you were going to introduce a doctrinal twist in which somehow the boundaries of vagueness uh, are are more tolerably broad because it's immigration, and and they neglect they or they refuse to take that step, and therefore it's just an extension to Johnson. That's right. So, all right. I so you learn. So you learn a little bit about Gorsuch. Although there. I will say one more thing. Um, there was a uh, uh, our friend Ben Wittes was cited by Justice Gorsuch in his opinion concurring in the. No dungeon. kidding. Uh, what for? Uh, for his preventive detention piece. No kidding. That's very cool. So, um, and one just one last sort of technical footnote. This is the first time we have Gorsuch providing the fifth vote with the lefties. Yeah. So that will get a lot of attention. Although I think, again, not surprising to folks who've been really watching carefully. So, any political scientists who are listening, be sure to adjust your attitudinal models. So totally. You can for uh, absolutely the complexities. Um, all right. Um, also, from the court this morning, I think not a surprise. We had a unanimous per curiam decision disposing of the Microsoft case. Do you want to say a bit about why and where that came from? Well, as we've we've covered this pretty well, so we'll be real brief on this. Um, um, the Cloud Act, the enactment of the Cloud Act, and the uh, issuance of a and the immediate issuance of a new uh, order under the Cloud Act seemed clearly to have mooted the case. And I think the only question you and I were wondering about was, in the course of of putting the the case to bed, would they vacate the Second Circuit's ruling? And the answer is yes. Yes, and I think that's what you predicted. Yes, and they sent back to the district court basically to d- dismiss yeah. the case as moot. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna remove the contempt finding and all the rest. So they they undo the whole deal as if it never was. Funny how that works. Uh, speaking of things that never was, uh, a new round of <laughs> sanctions. So um, in connection with the uh, strike on Syrian chemical weapons facilities, there was talk at the UN through uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley, who we talked about just yesterday. Indeed. Uh, Nikki Haley, who has repeatedly distinguished herself as having a sort of traditional foreign policy Republican perspective that sometimes seems a little at variance with the White House's, boy, was it this time. She had said there are sanctions coming against Russian companies that are in some way or fashion. I think the idea was that these are people that or entities that could be linked to support for the Syrian government's particular to the chemical weapons processes. Uh, I'm not sure what the precise details were going to be, but in any event, the New York Times broke a story saying that Trump, according to an unnamed White House official, is not just saying we haven't decided that yet, but actually has decided we're not doing that yet and has decided that his missile strikes was enough. And this is this is pretty interesting because it obviously brings to the surface the intra-executive frictions that can arise As I mentioned at the outset, we've had a series of pretty strong sanctions on Russia that the Treasury Department was advancing and touting. And each time that happened in the past, I've I've noted that, you know, this does go against the narrative of a Trump administration that is uh, basically in the pocket of of Putin. Um, Here, it's not that this shows that Trump is in the pocket of Putin, but it certainly shows that Treasury and and other power centers like Nikki Haley um, have a more aggressive view and that Trump is willing to say no, even when it's already out there publicly, that that the other parts of the executive branch are ready to advance sanctions and we're planning to do so. And then the White House intervenes to stop it. That's within his power. It's the president who has the vested power to do that under the relevant statute and as a matter of you know Article Two theory. So it's not like there's anything as a legal matter wrong with Trump having uh, decided we're not going to take this step. Um, but the politics and the implications of it for the larger question of posture towards Russia are, needless to say, fascinating. Okay. I mean, you say, you say fascinating. I say, um, good job, White House. Good coordination there. Good. Yeah, well, uh, that didn't surprise me. Um, 
we're on, I think, to our, our key topic. Indeed. Okay, so we want to talk about the draft. Let's call it the 2018 AUMF bill. I was going to call it the Corker Cane one, but okay. Corker, the Corker Cane bill. Corker Cane. Corker Cane. It's a, it's a bit of a mouthful. I'm not, I'm not quite uh, felicitous enough with my, <laughs> my speech to do that. Let's, whatever it is, let's talk about what is interesting and not interesting about it. How about a quick rundown? Mm. Um, like pretty much all the draft AUMF renewal bills that have been out there over the years, the basic framework's pretty simple. Uh, repeal and replace the existing 2001 and 2002 AUMFs with a fresh one that seems designed to have, let me let me underscore this, is very expressly designed to have continuity of authority so that nothing that was there and already settled, like detention authority or targeting authority against certain existing groups that was there under the existing 2001 AUMF would be lost. That's an important point because we've seen um, at least one public indication from acting DOD General Counsel Bill Castle uh, that there's some anxiety about the possibility that in the the repeal and replace process that something would be lost that would matter. So you sort of picture Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark trying (laughs) to swap the idol out for the bag of sand (laughs) and kind of smiling only to find out it's not a perfect switch and something terrible then happens. So Castle's suggestion had been that you're going to have the big ball rolling at you if you try to do this. I've never quite understood that. It's always seemed obvious to me that if you have language that explicitly says something along the lines of complete continuity of authority, then that's what you've got. Now, let's zero in a little further, though. This one provides for complete continuity of authority with the 2001 AUMF and and quite conspicuously does not say anything of the same sort for the 2002 AUMF, which it also repeals. Raises an interesting question. What is the delta there? What is taken away if you still have all the 2001 AUMF scope? but you don't have the Iraq AUMF scope. By definition, it's nothing that pertains to groups covered by the 01 AUMF. Right. It can only be whatever uses of force require or, or benefit from having a statutory authorization that are not an AUMF 01 covered group, but that pertain to Iraq in some plausible way. And I argued in my lawfare post this morning that the only thing I can think of that could possibly fit that bill might be some sort of notion of a use of force involving an Iranian target where it's plausibly linked to interference with Iraqi politics or something like that. So I actually think, Bobby, this is a drafting error. You think they just they just neglected well, to because, include it? Because in section – so in the findings, right, so in the purpose section, in section 2-3, mm-hmm. it actually provides that one of the purposes is to repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF as well. No, but it, it says that in Section 7, is it, that it expe- expressly repeals the O2. Oh, I see. But you're, and you're just saying, so, saying, so what does that take away that we need? Yeah, so what what you have here is there's clear, Sorry, silly me. There's clear repeal of, right, both, of both, but there's only continuity. Yeah. Continuity is mentioned twice for, for the AUMF. For the 2001 yeah. AUMF. So I think there's a purposeful desire here to make sure that there's not any mischief, any uh, stretched interpretations of O2 going forward, but to simultaneously assuage concerns that have been bubbling out of the Trump administration totally. that you're going to lose something for the status quo. No, no that's clearly right. But I think the, the devil's in the details, right? So so why don't we spend some actual time walking through the details? Would that be useful? Yeah. yeah. Are you let's, up for it? Let's start with uh, section three. Who gets who gets expressly named? Okay. Well, so I actually, can we even start before that? Yeah. Um, so section three, right, which I think is the first, what op- is the first operative section, um, right? This is the provision that is basically the direct authorization language. Right. So it starts with the obvious, right? The president is authorized to use, all- this is section 3A. If you're looking at this online, everybody, it's page three of the draft. Um, 
President's authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force. So, Bobby, right there, that's the same language as the 2001 AUMF, mm-hmm. relevant because that exact phrase, all necessary and appropriate force, has been interpreted by the Supreme Court in Hamdi to incorporate the international laws of war. Right. There's nothing in here that would undermine the current posture, which is that the laws of war are help, you, help you understand what counts as necessary and appropriate. Exactly. And I think that, that choice of language to me is quite conscious. Um, against. Now, it specifically identifies three what we might call primary groups, yep. right? The Taliban, al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Okay. And I would consider that certainly Taliban and al-Qaeda, that's entirely status, status quo. quo. No question. And there is this ongoing debate about whether the Islamic State's properly under the... But I think, listen, yeah. we, you and I have some have some marginal disagreements about that. I think there's no question that we both think it is appropriate yeah, oh, absolutely. for Congress to expressly name ISIS. Exactly. Okay. Quite, quite good to do so. So that's, that's it. But then, and this is where I think we're going to have our biggest disagreements. Mm-hmm. Um, Section 3A2 also says, and associated forces designated pursuant to Section Five. Now, this is relevant, I think. So first, this is the first time Congress would be codifying outside of the detention context that military force extends to associated forces. So my view of that is that it's completely settled under current law that the O1AMF includes associated forces. Well, so I, I, in the abstract, I agree. The question is, what are associated forces right. and how Just are they trying, determined? Just trying to go no, one no, step I, at a time. I agree. Right. So, so what so, I'm saying is yeah. it's an important step in codifying what I think we agree is the already existing understanding, but it's legislating it for the first time. Indeed. Okay. Um, there's a war power resolution notific- you know, provision that's yeah, just blah, blah, blah. boilerplate. Um, okay. Section 4 provides for quadrennial review, not a sunset. So this is one of the really interesting shifts from a bunch of the proposals that were in vogue, say, two years ago, the last time we really had a serious conversation about this, um, to this, right? Whereas the prior proposals were all proposing some kind of sunset on the theory that Congress would therefore be forced to pass a reconsidered, renewed, reinvigorated authorization. This just requires quadrennial review. So what it requires is every four years, there's a fast track procedure where the leadership can't prevent floor debate, very much like what we had recently with the Yemen issue, where there's going to be a big to-do. Now, that's not the same as a sunset, obviously. And quite purposefully, it was made clear through those prior drafts, uh, the sunset idea was a poison pill. There's Was it? Oh, certainly for this White House, it would oh, be. Oh, no, for this there, White House. There I don't is, think it was yeah. for the Obama I mean, White I, I want to be really, for the Obama be really clear on this. There's not the slightest chance that this thing can get signed into law and becomes law. So the whole exercise is academic if it includes a sunset, which is too bad because I support a sunset. Right. I, I don't but like, I don't there's want no to, point in the exercise if it has a sunset. Right now. But I don't want to lose the thread that actually during the Obama administration, I think a bill that was otherwise satisfying to all of the constituencies that had a sunset would have been signed by the president. Under Obama, it might have been. We don't know, but okay. it might have been. So the quadrennial review, as Bobby says, it it allow, it provides a procedure through which a resolution, right, including a proposal to repeal, modify, or leave in place this 2018 Cork or Kane UMF would receive expedited, specialized floor consideration, couldn't be blocked by the leadership. Right. Um, that sounds lovely. It, uh, better than the status quo, I think we'd all agree. 
it is better that well yes it's better than the status quo procedurally um there's one obvious point that's not said in the bill that still needs to be made um under chada right the supreme court's decision invalidating legislative vetoes for such a resolution to actually have force it would not only have to be passed by both houses but signed by the president no, or a, a national that's exactly veto. what this is designed to do it I doesn't know. it doesn't purport to be a legislative veto. no, no i know yeah. but because it would be unconstitutional if it was right, right? no so my point is that's all well and good so long as you have a president who's willing to sign the thing or a veto-proof supermajority in both houses. No doubt about it. All right. Um, Section 5, right, which is titled Congressional Oversight, um, actually includes what I think is one of the more controversial pieces of the whole bill. Right. It really connects back to Section 3 and probably this material about associated forces would make more sense if it was what immediately followed the listing of al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and the Islamic State. I mean, as a matter of drafting style, I think. Yeah, I mean, just you know, for clarity's okay. sake. So Section 5A, right, starts by identifying specifically what are called existing associated forces. Um, and here are the groups it identifies. It says the following organizations, persons, or forces are designated associated forces covered by the authorization. Um, A, AQAP, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. I think this is not surprising. I think, you know, that we have, m- both administrations have long taken the view that yeah. AQAP is an associated Complete force. status quo would be shocking if it weren't listed. Right. Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab's been identified as an associated force for, what, about a year now? After after many years of back and forth about yep. what to make of it. Yep. Um, Al-Qaeda in Syria, including the Al-Nusra Front. Uh, also not surprising. To me, the only thing interesting about that is the decision to treat it as as an associated force, as opposed to being the locally operative presence of right, Al-Qaeda as opposed to being as just such. A, a wing of Al-Qaeda. But, but the idea that it's somehow separate from Al-Qaeda and not engaged right. in hostilities is... Now, here's insane. where I think things get a little more interesting. The Haqqani Network. Okay, that's super not surprising. The Haqqani Network has been engaged in hostilities against the United States in Afghanistan for going on 16, No, no, I'm well aware now. of that. But it's the first time I think we've seen it put into words like this, right? That I mean, like we've talked before about how there's widespread acceptance of AQAP as an associated force, Al-Shabaab, yeah. whatever you want to call Al-Nusra. I don't know that we've all always thought of Haqqani as, as, as I, I think that's, puzzle. I think that is only because we don't focus on the, the complex sort of Taliban, but not quite Taliban groups mm. in the Afghan theater. And that the thing that's been most clear from the very beginning is the propriety of extending the 2001 AMF to the Haqqani network. Fair enough. But then if that's true, I mean, I, I'm with you. It but just never comes up because it's not treated as an externally you know, operating I, I hear you, but then group. here's my question, right? Does the specific inclusion of al-Nusra and Haqqani Right. Therefore, counsel a relatively narrow construction of the terms Taliban and Al Qaeda in Section Three. Right. Uh, that if, it, it certainly implies some, and that gets down into the factual weeds. Of I know, but how but, do those but, but you see what relate. I'm saying, right? That, yeah. that if the yeah. government, that if the, leg, if, the, if, the, if the authorization is going out of its way to specify groups that could plausibly have been just seen as subgroups of the already named yeah. primary groups. So I would say I would say no is to Connie, in, in just in part because I I think that. Hakani has been there all along as sort of the, to me, uncontroversial case that mm-hmm. doesn't even lead to discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, AQAP, Al Shabaab in particular, and then you got to get to the so last one, say, which is, the, this is by the, far the most interesting one. I was going to say, the so this is where things get interesting is um, Section 51E, AQIM, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Right. So this is the group that originally was out of Algeria, the Salafist group for calling combat. Its name has changed over time. There was a leadership transition, and at one point, sort of at the in the peak period of Al Qaeda franchise, they announced, hey, we're, we're, we're signing up, we're swearing by it, and we are now al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. There have been all these evolutions, especially since Libya fell apart and the Sahel kind of became more inflamed in this respect. The United States has used force a few times against people linked to AQIM. Uh, I myself have not previously seen any public discussion no. that AQIM is 
in as an associated force. That's not to say, though, that that decision hasn't actually been made. There was a drone strike in southwest Libya not that long ago that we talked about on this show yep. that, was, I, that was described publicly as targeting a couple of key al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb members. But, th- but this is a big step. If it's novel, it's a big step. We don't actually know. It's entirely possible that internally, and this to me is the whole point of why you, you do want these transparency mechanisms. It's possible the executive branch Listen, has decided right. AQIM is in the group. That's fine. But I mean, it's revelatory, right? That we don't know that. Exactly. Exactly okay. my point. All right. Um, then, right, here's where things I think start. Here's where I think we're going to start hearing a lot of noise from Absolutely. critics. What comes up next is the part that is the centerpiece of the controversy. All right. So the um, even if you accept Right, because as a matter of democratic process, right, Congress specifically identifying groups, yeah. whatever we think of the factual predicate, wrong, that's the way this is supposed to work. Right. But then there's the authority Congress delegates to the president to at least initially identify new associated forces. Um, let me jump to the definition first. Exactly. And then let's go to the procedure. So for the first time here, we do get a definition, though it's a very familiar definition in one respect and not the other. All right, so if you jump everyone to section 8.2, this is where so I think five two and eight two is where almost all the the important stuff is in the yeah. in the in the in the bill. Um, eight two is the definition of associated forces, and the term is defined to mean quote any organization, person, or force other than a sovereign nation that the president determines has entered the fight alongside and is a co belligerent with Al Qaeda, the Taliban, or ISIS. In hostilities against the United States. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Wait, before we go to the second part. Oh, I was gonna, no, I was getting oh. to the the oh, last okay. the last part of the first clause. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. So, in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners. Now, th- just to be clear, this is a big point of contention. It is, but this is entirely the status quo. I mean, this is not. This, there's the, not a thing novel about that. This is it's well, okay. So, this is I think where you and I are going to start disagreeing, right? I think there is a difference between what is the status quo from the perspective of executive branch practice and what is the status quo from the perspective of what Congress has written into the statute. But they have this in the NDAA. This has been confirmed in court With regard litigation. to detention authority. And yeah, has, the detention authority under the 2001 AMF. I mean, there's just know, zero doubt in my mind that this is how but it Bobby, actually you works. Know, but you know that there has not yet been a single case where a court has actually upheld detention on the ground that you are not in the hostilities against the U.S., but against one of its coalition partners. Yeah, right. But how is this different? How does codification here differ from what the NDA already uh, because produced in that respect? Whereas detention is the only place that that issue is going to arise, anyways. In I'm court. not sure that's true. Oh, well, in court, yeah, it's the only place it's going to arise in court. I still think that it is. Well, let me put it this way: as someone who thought it was wrong when it was in the FY 2012 NDAA as applied to the limited context of detention, whereas I think you agree it has not actually come up. Right, I think it's worse still to codify this into the whole bill. And let me just put this into into plain terms, because it suggests that you as a group can be subject to the use of military force, not because you're engaged in hostilities against the United States, but because you're engaged in hostilities against any of our coalition partners, right, for any reason. So let's go to here, pull the definitions, because there's a definition for associate for coalition partner. Can right, you go so to section A? Ten three. Uh, so coalition ten partner three. has the meaning given that term in the Military Commissions Act. Right. So go go. Let's go. Can can you pull up the uh, 10 U.S. Code 948A? Ooh. On the spot research. That's right. <laughs> this, this is the kind of production values you get on this show. We prep. We, we just do it on the spot. All right. So 10 U.S.C. I know I'm, my voice is going to vary a bit because I'm right. at my computer. And while you're digging that up, let me let me just say that, okay, what are the stakes here? The concern, which is a very real concern. Don't think I don't share the overarching possible concern, is that what if coalition partner could mean just about anybody in any setting? What is this dragging us into? Yep. So here's the, here's the MCA definition. Yeah. So this is 10 USC 948A3. The term coalition partner with respect to hostilities engaged in by the United States 
means any state or armed force directly engaged along with the United States in such hostilities or providing direct operational support to the United States in connection with such hostilities. Right. So in Afghanistan, where we have a large number of nations fighting alongside us, those are the coalition partners. Ditto for uh, for Syria, Iraq. No, no I agree. The pro- here, let, me, let me just sort of let me right. let me tell you what my concern is and see if you disagree. Okay. All right. Okay. My concern is yes, it's quite clear that it has to be a coalition partner engaged with us in the fight against Al Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS. Mm-hmm. It is not clear to me that the target of the force has to be engaged in that theater. So okay, so I think it's, Did you see what I'm saying? If if I'm not sure I agree that it can be read that way, but if it can't be, I would happily support Titan language to clarify to, to the that theater. it's gotta be there has to be a nexus with the hostilities that's common that Good. we're involved okay, in. Okay, then together. we agree actually. Yeah, totally. Oh, okay. So because yeah. you see my concern. And I think that's what they mean. I don't think they're trying to sneak in some deal where like, hey, you know, the Jordanians have this separate problem. Well with that's my that's my concern. Right. So friendly amendment, yeah. right? Make it clear that the coal that if it's if they're just fighting against the coalition partners, it's against the coalition partners in the theater in which they are a coalition partner. Right. And, or maybe even better, uh, without being so much on geography, but yeah. more on there has to be a nexus between that conflict. Fair enough. I think we're in agreement on that. Okay, cool. Wow. Hey, um, all right. All right. Now here, the, the definition keeps going, right? And I think this is where we yeah. get into some novel territory. Okay, so to, to recap, there's this initial part where... We're still in Section 8.2, everybody. And so you and I have some disagreements about the extent to which this definition is, is good or bad, but it's, it, is, it is the Consistent. one... You know, they didn't invent this one. They, they took what has been around right, for a while. Up to that, right, up to that clause or its coalition partners, right, which really ought to be a semicolon at the end, this is what we've seen right. so far. And then far. there's an alternative way of defining... Right. Or, so this could be an associated force, or that has been... A part of Al-Qaeda, so note the past tense there, right? Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, or an associated force designated pursuant to this authorization and is engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners. So this is the successor force. And they're they're obviously choosing not to use successor force language. I like this, uh, the has-been language. That's pretty fun. (laughs) Also ran. This this is entirely about the Islamic State scenario, right? We just had this multi-year dispute about whether the Islamic State, by having splintered away from Al-Qaeda and become Becoming hostile to some extent with Al Qaeda, while still being hostile to the United States, whether that took them out of the AMF that they previously, as Al Qaeda in Iraq, had plainly been under. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my view on this is that 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 sort of splinter does not. If you're still engaged in hostilities against the United States, then you you don't get out of the AMF that way. So to me, this is a codification of what should be the status quo or is the status quo interpretation. But I totally get it that not everyone likes that idea. Some people would would open the door towards groups uh, splintering out from under the AMF. They couldn't do it under this model. Um, they couldn't do it under this model. Now, I guess the question is, do you have any concern that this opens the door for like continuing the fight against groups that really are no longer... I mean, I guess my concern is... Does this go too far, right, in trying yeah. to define the concept of a successor if, force? If they didn't have the further requirement that the group still be engaged in hostilities against the United States, then absolutely, uh, I would have that concern. But I think they put that further requirement in there precisely in order to ensure that this doesn't lead us often to you know, chasing other people's problems and, and just preserves the ability to continue to use force against groups that continue to be hostile against us without regard to what sort of internal network breakups right. within the jihadi movement might take place. All right. So – um, you, I, my, I think I've aired my concerns about the definition, mm-hmm. right? I think yeah. we agree that they're at the margins. They're yeah. not totally nuts. 
Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, here's how this is supposed to actually work, right? right so that's the part. Yeah, now we're getting to the, the, the good meat. stuff. All right. So back to Section 5-2, right? Not later than 30 calendar days after this resolution, the president shall designate all organizations, persons, or forces other than the five listed specifically in the first paragraph. So is the idea there, hey, we've we've named five, Al-Shabaab, et cetera. Do we miss if anybody? We, if we've missed somebody, speak up now. Right. So, the, so Section um, 5 Two, right, is tell us everyone we've missed who you currently believe to be an associated force. Mm-hmm. All right? Um, fine. That's fine. I don't yeah. have, Five, three, though, right? Not later than 48 hours after the president determines that a new organization, force, person, or force is an associated force covered by the authorization to use the military force provided by Section 3. The president shall designate such organization, blah, 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 by submitting a report to the appropriate congressional committees and leadership. Each report shall contain detailed information providing the basis for the designation of each associated force, including classified information relating thereto. During the 60-calendar day period following the submission of any such report, um, a qualifying resolution to amend this resolution to remove the authorization to use military force against such associated force shall be entitled to expedited procedures pursuant to Section 9 of this joint resolution. So basically it says... In the future, when you've decided the definition's met by some new group that's not previously designated or isn't on our list, President, you can name that group, and you've got 48 hours to give the written explanation, possibly in classified format, which is a problem. I'll say something about that in a moment. Yeah. Um, to Congress, and we'll then have our same fast-track procedure with necessary floor debate uh, if there's going to be a bill to reverse that determination. And, of course, that's going to be an uphill battle for Congress, to say the least. So some would say, hey, you're giving him a blank check. I would say this is, compared to the status quo, an improvement because at least we're going to have floor debate about it, whereas the status quo is they just do this and we may or may not know. So I think now we come to the crux of the matter, right, which is there's a, I think there's a really important and not obvious debate, right, about what is preferable, um, a situation in which the president is doing this in the dark, right, where there's no uh, clear legislative buy-in, where there's no public transparency, but where there's also no clear authorization mm-hmm. so that if we ever got to a point where there was a justiciable legal dispute, courts might be skeptical of whether the president was faithfully interpreting the relevant statute. It'd be clear that they could review that. Right. Yeah. Versus a situation where Congress codifies an authority that would not just cement everything the presidents, three presidents, have done to date under the 2001 AUMF, but would also allow this president to basically expand it ad infinitum with legislative approval so long as there aren't enough votes to override a presidential veto. I think that is the crux of the dispute here. So to to me, it boils down to we, we all are proceeding, you and I are proceeding from the same place where you, you want some mechanisms of flexibility, but you also want mechanisms of constraint to police against unwise or unjustified applications of the basic idea, however we define it. And under the status quo model, which we've got nearly two decades of experience with, when the White House under both parties has wanted to expand it to apply to some new group, they've done it. Mm-hmm. And very often the public has had no idea hasn't really understood it. In the past, until recently, Congress often had no idea. There's some uh, uh, infamous moments at hearings going back, yeah. Uh, yeah. was it five or six years ago, where I think it was Corker, Senator Corker, asking, you know, for right. saying, saying, we don't know who you think the Associated Forces are. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, that's gotten better recently. Better. Right? So you've got this NDA provision. Right. Section, that, what, 1864 or something it, like that? It, you know, this, the provision that requires sort of a, a yearly update on have you changed any of the legal policy framework? 
Um, so there's, it's clear that Congress knows these days, but the public has no guaranteed knowledge. Okay. So the first thing I would say right. is, the if this becomes law, the provision where the executive branch has to justify the new designation, um, it needs to be clear that there must be a public statement of who the designated organization is. Now that's that's gonna come out if there's then floor debate and all that, but they should make it clear that because that, that would be a big improvement over the status quo. But as you say, there's there's a trade-off there. You're adding the imprimatur of legislation on the designation process, and no doubt the Justice Department, and I, I argued this in my, yep. my post this morning at Lawfare going over all this, uh, the Justice Department, when if and when ever in the position in court to have to defend the propriety of saying that Group X is an associated force under the statute, they could say, courts, you don't get to second guess this because Congress delegated discretion, either Congress or the president or both have the entirety of decision making on this. So I suggested that this, that, that is a problem that does concern me, but the only place it ever is going to arise is in a detention case. And yeah. So I said, how about a, a, I don't know if this is a friendly amendment or not, but how about specifying one line that this mechanism shall not be binding in the event of habeas litigation? If you if you had that, I mean, so, you took so, that concern listen, out. I certainly, I would certainly. That, that certainly strikes me. I know you'd like that better. <laughs> I like that better. It doesn't uh, it doesn't alleviate my it doesn't obviate my concerns, right? Which is you know, it's this is why. So just to to cut to the chase, this is why I think the sunset was such a vital piece of the earlier proposals, right? Because a sunset would require would flip the stakes, right, with regard to Congress and the president. Now imagine President Trump asserts. That a couple of groups who are, let's say, not the ACLU, right? But because that's the right, but marginal, right? Marginal um, uh, international terrorist organizations, not really related to the conflict, right? Maybe JI. Okay, how about how about Boko Haram? Boko Haram. Very. And I say that advisedly. It's entirely possible, right? That we that already right treat now, them as an associated They're covered, and you don't know, and I don't know. So listen, fine, but let's imagine they're not, right? All right. Or even someone slightly. Like, so, a group for which there's at least a non-frivolous case, right, that they're covered by the definition. Okay. Okay. Um, it would take a veto-proof supermajority of Congress to disapprove extending this authorization to cover that. Now, I know your response is, as of right now, same nothing deal. would stop that. Yeah, no, it's the same deal. You still have to have a supermajority. Right. But so we're back to the question of what would I prefer as between the really problematic status quo or a bill that has some upsides. The, all the transparency benefits you just discussed, mm -hmm. right? But also the very real downside of enshrining this um, well, in ways that it's not currently is enshrined. Is there a setting other than habeas litigation where that downside, the enshrinement factor, yeah. uh, actually has any practical bite? So, I mean, imagine we're, we've never seen this, right? But imagine if the government were at some point to use force. I don't just mean detention, but I mean mm -hmm. kinetic force on U.S. soil against U.S. persons under the auspices of the AUMF. I assume in that context, courts are going to be a little less skeptical about the various just deals. Just the, the Rand Paul drone strike at a dude sitting coffee in shop, a coffee shop right? in Houston. I mean, no, right? right? So, but imagine, like, yeah. imagine, ima so imagine a hypothetical where there is a new terrorist group, right, that actually we find out has a cell in Northwest Montana. Right, yeah. Al Qaeda in North Dakota. AQND. AQND. Okay. Um, right. Sorry, North Dakota listeners. So I think I, I don't want to give up the ghost 
most that habeas is the only context where this is going to matter, right? It is certainly mm -hmm. true under current doctrine that non-citizens outside the United States are not going to really be able to bring a lawsuit arising out of yeah. any use of force short of capture and detention. Right. So that, it's, it's a good move to move the hypothetical to a citizen because then you can imagine that there would be a justiciable case. But I think that the citizenship factor would all in the territorial factor would overcome any deference that otherwise would be forced to attach to this. Um, I think it would certainly make it much less likely that the well, courts... So, 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 so let me ask you a question. So imagine a habeas case involving a citizen, right, of a group that the president designates under the statute and the Congress does not disapprove. Does this statute satisfy the... So, so I, I just, I'm tracking you. Sorry. Anwar so Al-Awlaki scenario for Al-Qaeda in... North uh, Dakota. Or let's move it out of the United States to make it a more plausible case. Because, frankly, I, don't, right. I just don't think it's plausible at all inside the United States. All right. So Al-Qaeda in uh, Greater London... Right, AQGL. Let's make, let's make it. Let's make it. Uh, uh, Kuwait, Al Qaeda in Kuwait. Okay, fine. A group that has not hitherto been an associated force. AQK, and it turns out they've got this American right. citizen. So if the president targeted. files the relevant designation, right? Right. Do you think that this statute satisfies the, the non-detention? So act? I think that this is. First of all, it would never be litigated because we have the Alalaki precedent before us, which is that case, AQAP. Which that was, was a drone strike. That wasn't a habeas case. Oh, sorry. I thought, you, I thought no, we were talking no, about drone strikes. I was positive a habeas case. I'm saying a guy— Right, and under my model, we should have a, a line in there if it's habeas No, no, but I'm asking the substantive question, which is he gets in the court, but but what is the court deciding, right? Is the president's determination—do we read that as being incorporated by Congress because they haven't disapproved it, or do we read it as being not clear in the statute that AQ Kuwait— Right is a group against which Congress has right. Used no, force. so this this was my point earlier that I think if you have this legislation in this framework without my friendly amendment, right, to to make it neutral on that's, deference, that's bad. If, right, then, you need well, the amendment. Well, okay, so what would actually happen? I think that you know certainly the government would say, and right. I wrote in my post, the government surely would argue that they're entitled to binding deference right. on the designation decision, which is committed by statute to the executive branch, subject to congressional oversight, which in that model didn't effectuate. Um, and so I would a court necessarily accept that interpretation of it, especially if it's a citizen? Hard to know, but they certainly might, right? It's not hard to imagine. They might say, look, the, the question of who we're at war against and whether this group qualifies, that is committed to the sound discretion. It's also, by the way, possible that that's the analysis that would flow anyways, even without this definitional mechanism where, you, where you've delegated some authority. So I guess the, the difference between this, I think, is you're, you're giving more weight than I'm giving to the, to the notional or theoretical uh, effect of the imprimatur or the delegation. Um, I'm focusing very much on this notion that habeas is the one place where this would make a potential practical difference. And I'm suggesting that we, we can right. and probably should cure that one area. And, and if I you do that, then then this is pretty much an improvement on the status quo. So listen, again, if the question is, is this an improvement on the status quo, right? I think yeah. the answer is marginally, right? Yeah. Um, I like the transparency, right? I like requiring Congress to get invested. Yeah. If you contrast this with what I think would have been possible as recently as 18 months ago, right, um, this is a dramatically weaker and more alarming, you know, modern contemporary codification that is going to be used by the government for decades, right, to, in response to arguments that, for example, the 2001 AUMF authority is unraveling, right, that we've gone too far from the moorings of that statute. And, and one of the differences between us is I see I see zero prospect, after after eight years of Barack yeah. Obama, no less, happily proceeding under the 2001 AMF, I see zero chance of anything else getting through no, no, I don't. in the, the foreseeable future. Listen, the question to me is whether better this now, right, or if you think there's a chance that there is a different president in three years, 
right? Hold out for something better then. But why would it be better then if you didn't get something better even under Barack Obama? I just don't think it's likely. It's because the reason the reason why we didn't get a sun right why didn't we get an AUMF right out of Congress during the Obama administration? Because there was no imperative for it, right? Because there was enough poison pills on both sides to prevent there being a real forged consensus. Well, and also the but critically that the administration was quick to say we don't actually need this. Well, we not that, wait. This administration doesn't. Where has the Trump administration said they need this? They don't. Right. That's so, my point. Is the Trump administration may not support this. Probably will veto this thing anyways, even with all the weaknesses that you're describing. Anything more is not going to get through. And I guess the million dollar question is whether I'm more comfortable with the uncomfortable, awkward status quo than with this bill that solves some of the problems caused by the uncomfortable status quo, but actually hardline, you know, in hardwires and ingrains some of my broader concerns. I think everything I want to be clear. Yeah. Every problem I have with this bill would change if it was a, if there was a sunset. So if uh just thinking ahead, you're, you're imagining that you want, you'd rather hold out a little while longer in the hopes that you get a, a better alignment of governing forces for the next term or the term after that. But if you do get that, if you get that regime of yeah. a, you know, who, I don't know who that would be, yeah, but yeah. this sort of, uh, I guess, some kind of progressive alignment of the stars, um, then they would have the forces to undo this whole thing too. Um, I think it's harder, yes, although I think it would be harder then, right, against the face of having just done this versus if we're still, if it's 2021 and the AUMF is in its 20th year of non-material amendment, right? So, so again, it's the question is, it, I, I know a lot of folks at home are going to be like, this is just the perfect being the enemy of the good, right? And I guess the question is just, it's been 17 years since the AUMF was enacted. Let's imagine that if this is enacted, it's going to be another 17 years before the forces align, right? And so this statute is going to govern the next 17 years of the use of force under this paradigm, right? That gives me grave concerns about just how much presidents could unilaterally expand who we are at war with without congressional approval, right? Where you, the only way you could get Congress to push back is through a veto-proof supermajority. So my prediction is if this thing would last for 17 years for those reasons, so we'd be up to 34 years on the 2001 AUMF if the political forces right, at which point, there to, At which point the courts might very well take up Justice O'Connor's invitation and I, say, whoa, everybody, this is 34 years. It's kind of a long time. At the 17-year mark, there's no evidence that we're likely to have that happen, but uh, you know, I, we'll see. Listen, I just I think if you contrast so, – so your point, which I think is worth reiterating, right, is that uh, weighed against the political moment we're in right now, this is actually a pretty good deal. Right. Yeah. And my response is, I don't disagree with that as against the political moment we're in right now. I'm thinking both of where we were 18 months ago and where I hope we're going to be in three years in both contexts, which I think we could have gotten yeah. a much better bill. I, I just I have problems with I, I, I think that's too rosy looking back at where we were 18 months ago. <laughs> we had we had years of opportunity where Obama was in the White House, where there could have been a new AMF. Yeah. Yes, there are a lot of poison pills, but that's going to be true in the future, too. No, I know. But imagine I mean, so imagine, for example, if Hillary had won the presidential election. Right. And then Hillary made it a priority to get a new AUMF. Right. I actually think we could have ended up somewhere close to where, for example, was it the um, Adam Smith bill was right at the end of 2016. Um, listen, I, I don't I don't mean yeah, to belabor the yeah, point. We're, think, we're probably both being too speculative, but I think and, we've and, and mapped I think out we're, the, right, I, say, I think we're this into the ground. I yeah. think, right, this is a very so. So let me say one positive thing about this. Right. Which is, you know, hey, Congress, 
Congratulations, right? <laughs> you have once again discovered that you have the power to regulate uses of force by the executive branch. And I'll, Yay. I'll, I'll, I will even give him a non-sarcastic, I'll give him a non-sarcastic non-golf clap and say, hey, isn't this nice? Bipartisan legislative effort back and forth across the aisle trying to do something that is clearly designed to try to improve on the status quo. And it, nice and, work. And isn't it ironic that it's dropped the Monday after airstrikes on Friday that this bill says nothing about whatsoever? Uh, I'm I not know following are, on that. They're one. talking past the. It's at cross purposes, but like yeah. you know, Congress, if you're going to engage, hey, how about engaging? Well, I mean, I think that's unfair to them on this one. This has been in the works for so long. Uh, the the Syria deal, and this is the best we could do. Come on, people! <laughs> they did a great job. All right. Well, I think I think our, our opinions are, are relatively well aired. So exactly. On, I, why don't we just stop talking? Do you think? Okay, here's the the final question. Yes. Is this our last episode this week? I'm going out of the limit. I'm saying, I'm saying no. I think we'll get yes, Friday. Unless it really has to be dealt with, we got to save something for next week. I know, but like the way that Friday went and the way that Monday went, yeah. I feel like by by this Friday we may have a a a, a, a convergence of, of events. Oh, heaven help us! All right. Well, on that note, everybody, um, I guess stay safe out there, and we'll be back at you soon. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. Bobby's at Bobby Chesney. We're at NSL Podcast. Tell your congressman. Uh, <laughs> tell your friends. Tell your enemies, tell your favorite associated force, and we'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Adios. Stay safe out there.